0: The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing.
1: Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast. Today, I am with Bogdan Constantine. Who is the founder and CEO of VoxyChat, which is a text marketing platform based out of Atlanta, Georgia? Recently raised a whopping $25 million. He was the previously founder of a startup called Menguin, that's Penguin with a P uh, or with an M, get it, uh, where he was a CMO, CTO. He grew the business uh, exponentially uh, from 2014 to 2017 before it was acquired by George Zimmer's Generation Tux. Uh, this $25 million round for VoxyChat was funded by um, Atlanta's best and finest with Nora Mosley Partners, Wayne Kellum, uh, Engage, Circadian uh, Circadian Ventures, Andy Powell, and David Cummings. Uh, Bogdan, how you doing?
2: Doing great, David. Thanks for having me on. One special shout out: our lead on this most recent round was Tom Noonan, his family office. He's a he's a you know legacy you know top Atlanta entrepreneur, one of the best entrepreneurs I've ever met. He was the founder and CEO of a company called ISS. He took it public, so the classic entrepreneurial story of starting a company, IPOing, and then it eventually was acquired by IBM. Uh, he he led the, the most recent round uh, with participation from uh, all of our investors, and it's uh, it's been a fun ride.
1: So is he a better investor than Wayne?
2: You can't, you can't load <laughs> me up that way. dude. They're, I would honestly tell you that they're about as equal in terms of credible operator entrepreneur that I've ever met. They're different, right? In in terms of uh, uh, the advice and the interactions, but they're both just incredible. They're just like legends. Every time I'm around them, and I just I have a million questions, and I just learn so much, and they're so unbelievably helpful. So in terms of their uh, ability to give back and engage and just be helpful is unparalleled. They're both phenomenal.
1: Do you have um, Do you have two preferred board seats or just one preferred board seat? Uh, two. two, two. Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, and you like having they're both the financial guys. Or excuse me, both are operators that are sitting on your board.
2: That's that's exactly it. Yeah, so we've got a number of uh, we've got a number of operators on the board specifically for this reason. Um, I think in general, right, that folks who have been in the trenches, been there, done that, have a ton of advice, uh, both good and bad, right? What, you know, where they erred, what they did well, what they wish they would have done better. So it's been invaluable to me to be able to have those types of folks to pick their brains, not just on the board, but really kind of our entire investor base. You mentioned some great names on there. Uh, you know, Kyle's on our board from, from a Sales Loft. But also folks like David Cummings, right, who's, you know, in a same, you know, Atlanta, just incredible entrepreneur, built an incredible business here. But also, you know, just a variety of those types of folks, Andy Powell at CallRail uh, that have just been, you know, instrumental in our success and folks that I can access and, you know, ask questions. How did you think about this? Who should I talk to about that? It's been awesome.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. Um, all those names are uh, exceptional Operators specifically in Martech, right? I mean, like David Cummings and and Andy Powell, yeah. they're legends in Atlanta when it right. comes to Martech. You know, I was listening to a uh, a podcast um, this week, uh, the All In podcast. You listen to that one? Yeah, I um, have. And they were talking about just board members and adding value. And I think I think Wayne would be the exception to the rule because Wayne. Kellum, who actually recommended um, you on this podcast, when I asked him, you were kind of like second best. You know, Wayne was like, "Yeah, I'm trying to stay out of the limelight. You should ask Bogdan." So, um, but uh,
2: he said, "Yeah, I'm going to get him yeah, on." Like get him he's, on. Just, he's just you're even, drop bombs.
1: Well, yeah, I'm just going to do it at three in the morning when he's usually awake. So there you go.
2: That's the best way to do it. Then he has no he has no way to get out
1: of the no <laughs> no excuse. But you know, I mean, when you have a um, a versatile group of companies. I mean, Wayne uh, has been the CEO of several different companies yeah. in several different sectors. And, and in which case you have a, um, a plethora of different experiences that you can draw from. I, I do find somehow, maybe this is a little biased because I don't have a, a giant startup exit, right? That I can claim my name to. Maybe I'm just a little jealous, but part of me thinks that, you know, the one guy that was a CEO founder that did scale his company that exited can they be a hindrance to a CEO and a founder with not having a, a bunch of different data points to to go by?
2: So I would tell you that probably, and this is obviously my view. Ten years ago, likely would have been the case, right? Because it was a very different world in software and SaaS. But today, in particular, things move so quickly that you know one of the so exactly what you just called out, Kyle Porter you know, 10-year journey at Sales Loft, just had a massive investment from Vista Partners, you know, just a rocket ship of growth. Um, he told me something that I think about almost on an, on a daily basis. He told me, and it almost verbatim his exact words, Bogdan, until I realized that I had to grow faster than the set of my own experiences, I wasn't growing at the exponential rate that I had to to, make, to keep up with the business the way that I, I needed to as a CEO. And once I started unlocking things like mentors, my network, books, and just learning from the experiences of others, that's when things went next level for me, you know, for him at Sales Loft. And I've kept that in the back of my head because what he basically said is if you are going to rely on you making your own mistakes to to learn from, you're not going to be able to scale this business the way that you want to and the way that, you know, the market's calling for you based on kind of what we're seeing from an indication and a you know product market fit perspective. You've got to learn from everybody and anybody that has been you know before you. But to that point, you know what I've seen in SaaS these call it past you know five or so years is that people are borrowing from everything from the consumer landscape from um, literally any aspect of distribution because things have changed so dramatically. You mentioned Martech. You know we have customers now that. You know, gauge the efficacy of our product based on how the UI looks, right? Sure. That wasn't part of you know even a couple of years ago in SaaS, right? It was yeah. all about MVP, minimum viable design, et cetera. Now it's the other way around, right? You've got to you know consumerize it like the Robinhood app on your phone or whatever. It's going to be a delightful interaction because everybody's become a consumer and they all buy like they're on Amazon or you know some some e-commerce site. So So, Kyle,
1: yeah, so Kyle Porter, he basically said for me to paraphrase that you need to constantly be making yourself uncomfortable, in which case you do not know what you're doing in order to, or else because you're not moving fast enough.
2: Correct. And then learning how to overcome that discomfort, master it, and then go on to the next thing, right? Basically, my job, if I'm doing it, you know, if we're doing this right, should be changing every roughly six to eight months, right? The things I'm focused on, et cetera. But so, I, yeah,
1: I, I agree with that completely, you know, uh, and then being able to put yourself out there
2: to know that you're not the smartest guy in the room. Is exactly it, right? And so back to your original question, do you get more out of a, of a guy like Wayne, right, who's seen so many movies and so many different industries and it's funny. I'll be talking to him and it's like he knows the next five things I'm going to say, right? Mm-hmm. And we can paraphrase and we can get to, okay, here's the problem. Here's how we look at it. And that's just, you know, he's brilliant in that way. But the flip side is having, you know, somebody like, for example, going back to Kyle or Andy for, for, for that matter, um, not only have they kind of been in this one massive multi-billion dollar from zero to a hundred, a thousand SaaS company that they've built, but, you know, they always have their expertises and their niches. So even though, to Wayne's point, he's seen so many movies, he's seen so many companies, these guys in particular often have areas of focus or expertise Andy with product, Kyle really with uh, organizational management, culture, and also distribution and sales, right? Uh, That I can really go and it very quickly becomes apparent where they're experts and I can go and leverage those expertises. Uh, You know, David Cummings, similarly, uh, he's just an expert when it comes to organizational design, company design, uh, incentives alignment, right? How do you make sure that everybody's rowing towards the same goal? How do you beat that drum so much that you get tired of it? That's when they start realizing and, and you know the team really picks up on it. so, so once you figure out who to leverage for what it, it makes a big deal even if they haven't you know done it a thousand times like one
1: So let's let's talk about I want to talk about um, Voxy but first before that, you grew up in Ar- Arkansas? I
2: didn't that's a really good question. Um, so <laughs> that's, I, that's, a, that's a lie that's not like a dirty rumor
1: someone's been spreading around.
2: I wish that, no, I lived in Arkansas with my last company, actually. So uh, TLDR started Manguin in Atlanta. So it was an online tuxedo rental company like the Netflix of Tux Rental, massive $2.2 billion industry that we were trying to disrupt. And I candidly tried to raise money in Atlanta in 2014. This was not a consumer town back in the day. And I you, had better, you had better luck in Arkansas
1: where there's a lot of consumer investors. I'll actually tell you how
2: this happened. But it, it, one last thing, it didn't help that I would go to investor pitches in a tuxedo. That was probably not the best idea. But, you know, this is my first venture. I had a lot to learn. Um, but fundamentally, what happened is there was a gentleman in Arkansas that had exited his company, General Atlantic, e-commerce business in the cowboy boot space. He'd actually built a variety of niche companies, had a massive exit. And he partnered with basically the top players in the state, and they were building an e-commerce mecca there, right? The, the most prominent families that had that had the multi-billion-dollar you know retail chains, et cetera, out there. And he was building effectively an e-commerce uh, investment fund. And as part of that, the thesis was that we were going to build in Walmart's backyard because you know of all the the leverages and synergies that were there. But to do that, you had to be out there. And We were actually the first investment out of that fund. And candidly, at that point, we'd done. in revenue for that business It's me, two other gentlemen. um, And they believed in us after, you know, five, six months of fundraising, when we were here in crickets, right? They saw the, they saw the vision and coincidentally, as soon as we got there, growth blew blew up in terms of acquisition and everything worked out really well. We had a great return for that fund. We were one of the first exits, kind of in that startup ecosystem perspective and the whole state leaned in. So it was really cool. So I lived there for about two and a half years before exiting the business. And then after kind of finished my, my 18 months there, moved back to Atlanta. But to your long version of saying I'm not from Arkansas, I've got a bunch of great ties to the state, both the Little Rock and the Northwest Arkansas area where I lived, and a huge, huge fan of that state. And I think it's got a, a, a ton of potential both from a talent and a growth perspective.
1: Awesome. So
2: did you have a co-founder for that business? Uh, for for Menguin, the the director consumer business, yeah, yeah, I have two actually, yeah. Uh, 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 both guys actually, neither of them were from Arkansas. Same type of deal. One was from Dallas, one was from the Detroit area. They both met at Indiana University, and I met them after they graduated, and I ended up coming on as as the third co founder as as we were scaling that business.
1: Awesome, and then I mean,
2: that must have been some
1: pretty. Were you the first guys that did the the mail order tuxedo?
2: Yeah, we were. So there was another competitor that launched about six months after us. They raised way more money in California on the West Coast. Um, but yeah, We were the first guys out, which is kind of crazy back in the day. Figuring yeah. out how to fit guys on the internet, uh, V one of that. We'd send every guy a specific DVD and they had to be in front of their webcam and they had to do specific things with the DVD to get bought. <laughs> we invested so much in this fit technology and what we found is guys didn't want to use it. They'd rather just guess their sizes. Rather guess. All right. for replacements. Yeah, so that's what ended up happening. <laughs> But yeah, we were the first guys out to do that. Actually, that business of feci- uh, kind of officially started at the end of thirteen, and then we went live with it in 14, 2014.
1: Yeah, so, so like- I just rented a tux. Um, my nephew, who like is in his late twenties, like had wanted a black tie wedding, and yeah, yeah. I'm like, dude, like, who the hell do you think you are, like? <laughs> I mean, you're, <laughs> I mean, like, are you serious? You want, like, a bunch of people to come to your wedding in, like, a black tie? Like, you're such a punk. Um, And I'm not going to buy a tux, right? So I actually just rented a tux, and um this kid's wedding lo- literally looked like Justin Bieber got married. Like, it was, like, the most insane thing I've ever seen. He's, on-
2: he's going to have photos for the rest of what we figured out early on, not to get too much in the consumer and that old industry I was in. But the only thing people care about, David, in particular – the bride is the most important part of that wedding, as you know, right? It's it's her day. The only thing they care about is how the photos look. Yeah. So when we went down this like decision tree of what really matters, all of our photography, our digital assets were always immaculate. The guys looked great. We you know we had all these taglines. We fit everybody. They looked like James Bond. All of the stuff, but that was the only thing that mattered to the bride who was the ultimate decision maker. So I bet everybody looked awesome. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. No, I guess they did. Uh, I didn't go because I got COVID. So oh, no. uh, <laughs> I missed the wedding. And so I returned the tux. But yeah, it was amazing how easy that was. It's cool that you were the one of the forefathers of, the, of that business. So you ended up exiting that business. It was a good outcome for all. Tell me about the transition into that and Voxy Chat.
0: Yeah. Is it so, Voxy
1: Chat or is it Voxy?
2: Just Voxy. Uh, okay. Our legacy URL was VoxyChat. Chat. And then about a year in, we were able to acquire Voxy.com. But from the get-go, it was always going to be Voxy. And just for reference, and people always ask me, hey, why is it called Voxy? Voxy means to grow in Norwegian and Swedish. So now we'll get meta and talk about why, we ch- why I chose that name. And it's really, really, uh, the perspective was this. You think about how businesses engage their customers and kind of the evolution from, you know, direct mail to phone to email. Fundamentally, all those mediums have been talking at the consumer. Right. And we're at this kind of precipice in the in, in kind of that, that business to consumer communication where you suddenly have the ability to talk with the customer. And the thesis that we have at Voxie is that in the future for a brand to grow, which is what Voxy means in Norwegian, it must do one thing. It must be able to talk with all of its customers at scale, build one to one relationships, learn their likes, preferences and everything in between and build that relationship. Otherwise, they will not be around in five years, 10 years. Right. Because if they can't build that relationship in this new world with all the changes that we're seeing, they're not going to be able to continue growing and sustaining. So the thesis is that Boxy is the bridge between that business and its end customer by connecting them through conversations. We started with text message. So SMS, right? So we're a conversational texting automation platform, right? So as a business before you used email, they used phone, we can augment those channels and drive dramatically better results at scale for our partners and customers.
1: So how'd you come up with this this concept from a really from, good on, have, from, it, from, from online tuxedos? And do you have co-founders
2: in this one? So no, this was all me. Uh, uh, one man show. But and the flip side of that is I have a Rockstar team, right? That is all extremely, you know, well incentivized and aligned on helping us scale and grow that business. And I've got awesome partners. Um, going back to how we founded the business. So we, we talked about hey, we grew, we we had this exit, right? in arkansas all of that stuff. How all that happened, David, was was kind of a funny story. It basically started with this really interesting concept of we were a direct-to-consumer business. And if you remember back in the old days, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016. What consumer businesses would do is they run ads on Facebook, on Google, and all these different mediums. And then they would drive it to a web page where they'd have a what's called a, a landing page or a lead, you know, lead lead form that gets some information from you to put you in their email drip campaigns. And then they would email drip you for X time until you purchased. And the entire e-commerce flow was basically a math formula. What happened to Voxy, excuse me, why Voxy exists is. That problem at Manguin became exacerbated for me. About two years in, we had record growth. And basically my third year, we started seeing massive declines in email. I invested heavily in email marketing automation. I had an incredibly sophisticated program. And I used to go around bragging about how great my email open rates were to the e-commerce founders. You know, because Yeah, do- that used
1: to be the best, right? E-commerce was the best tool.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. We we were averaging mid 20% open rates at scale, you know, on email, which was unheard of. Because
1: you owned the data. You had the direct, I mean, you had the direct access to the customer. You didn't have to go through a platform like Facebook or that's
2: exactly it. Once I acquired them, I could build that relationship. Well, something interesting started happening in 2016. All of these ad platforms and all of the email platforms started changing their algorithms, their filtering. So almost overnight in 2016, I started seeing that my email open rates. Had basically tanked. They were sub ten percent for the first time ever, and I freaked out. Right, I was I was panicking, trying to figure out what had happened. And overnight, Google had rolled out a new filtering mechanism on their Gmail product, where my emails were no longer going to your, to David's inbox. They were going to promotions and spam. Right, even with whitelist. Awesome. IPs, it was awesome. Right, so now suddenly, especially even
1: if you, even if you opted in, right, it's right, still going right. to to spam.
2: That's exactly it. So now my main growth driver, I don't know. An entire acquisition apparatus of running ads, acquiring your email, drip nurturing until you bought, which in my industry could be six to nine months of being relevant, basically dried up overnight. So I went down this rabbit hole of how do I get in front of this customer? I'm competing with the blockbuster of my space, right? The brick and mortars, the men's warehouses of the world. And when David goes into a men's warehouse, he has this great engaging conversation with the salesperson. They take him, they show him the wares that he gets to try it on. And he basically leaves with a tuxedo. I was trying to emulate that experience where my customer lived digitally. And the, the question I kept having was, where are they talking with their family, with their friends? How do I interject myself there? And overwhelmingly, it was apparent in 20, you know, towards the end of 2016, it was through text message, right? But all the texting products out, and it's still very much the case today, were those five-digit codes, one-way blast, text dog to five 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 six six. Here's a spammy offer. You couldn't have a back and forth where you'd build the relationship, ask David open-ended questions, learn what he was looking for, and then direct him to a portion of your site. So I was trying to figure that out. And when I couldn't, I literally just grabbed my iPhone and I just started texting a variety of leads, seeing what happened. When I sent open-ended questions like, hey, David, wavy hand emoji, I'm bogged in your personal stylist over here at Mango. <laughs> you swung by our website yesterday. Thank you, exclamation mark. Just wanted to check in. I noticed you were looking at some of our blue suits which one were you thinking was for you and which one was for your groomsmen, question mark. Notice, no spam, no link. I'm trying to ask you an open-ended question. Customized. Highly personalized, one-to-one, 100% not scalable. I ended up texting about 162 people in about a two-hour period. And for the next two hours, I get about a 70% response rate. They're coming in fast with questions like, when do I get it? How does this work? Questions that my emails used to answer, Right. But even then my top performing emails only a quarter of the customers were opening. Well Here, right
1: and and you would you would have an FAQ on that email and it wasn't right. a it wasn't a direct question it was just kind of this this canned you know FAQ list right, right? and right. What, what are the odds that someone's going to read through that to get all their questions
2: answered. Very low right and suddenly I had this conduit to the customer and I could instantly make recommendations saying oh, of course we can do that we're the only ones that can do that you need to do this now if you want this by this date. And I'd give them little links to the website and I'd check the next day and they'd have done the action. They'd have put their credit card on file. They've done whatever I was looking for. And I was enamored with this back and forth. It was obviously exhausting, right? And, you know, I was doing this a good part of my day, you know, as a founder for the next four weeks. And then suddenly I, I have my, my business partner pull the results, right, our COO. And I'm like, hey, I've been running this code. I tagged all these folks. Can you get me order level data? I want to see what the heck's going on on the flip side. How many of them are actually buying versus just BSing me, and I almost fell out of my chair, and I had to go confirm that the data was right. And he, you know, been an equities trader on Wall Street. He almost looked at me as though I'd insulted his intellect. You know, <laughs> how dare you think I can't do Excel, Bogdan? Right. Uh, that was my job. But once we, you know, confirmed that, we closed almost fifty percent of that business, which we'd never done to such an to such an extreme amount before. I was it was such a compelling story and result that I said, okay, I got to figure out where this really stops scaling because if this works to the tune of X million dollars, I can just build at a massive call center, right? If I can build the use case. So where does marginal revenue equal marginal cost? Is it going to be three CS CS reps? I had 17 in my call center at the time. So I go to Walmart and I do the most unscalable slash scalable thing ever. I buy 34 straight talk wireless cell phones. I bring them back (laughs) to the office. There's these really crummy LGs. They probably
1: thought you were like a member of the Taliban.
2: That's right or something, right? <laughs> like trying to these really crummy you know, LGs. Some Nova kind of like LG, terrorist right. cell communication yeah, that's right. network. That, that's right. Buying one month of text and internet service. And I basically gave each rep two phones. And I hold myself up in the customer service room. And we played with everything. With copy, what we say, when we say it. If I text David and he doesn't respond, how long do I wait until I text him again? What do I say to get him to re-engage? Fast forward two months in, explosion of growth, off the charts. Very quickly, we realized, hey, we're going to have some major inventory constraints. We can't handle this. I thought we maybe get a couple hundred thousand, you know, dollars out of these, and it's the other way around. We're looking at possibly, you know, double-digit millions that are going to start flowing through this because this channel is working so well. So then, let's you know, fast forward how I get you know acquired. I go looking for inventory. They see the growth. George Zimmer buys the business, and I spent the next year and a half effectively trying to scale. Bogdan's conversational thing out of our massive call centers, right? How do I build one-to-one at real scale when I have, I don't want to say unlimited ad dollars, but significantly larger ad dollars than I had before, right? And we kept running into challenges around scaling the CS team because at that point, I'd have a back and forth conversation with David and I'd learn all these things. When is what when his wedding date is? How many groomsmen? colors. There was
1: a knowledge transfer.
2: Right. It was it was supposed to be going to our CRM, which was uh, no. it yeah. wasn't. <laughs> Even yeah. more so, David wouldn't respond, and the reps were supposed to follow up. And they get so overwhelmed with conversations, they wouldn't follow up at the right time. So the wheels were basically falling off the bus. And you know, about a year and a half in, I'm I'm getting very frustrated trying to solve this challenge because when it works, we're, we're on a roll, you know, rocket ship. And then as soon as it breaks, it's one of these, right? We're doing a we're doing a roller coaster, if you will. So I become obsessed that this is the future. And then in the future, all brands are going to have to talk with their customers where the customer lives. And overwhelmingly at that time and today, it's still text or SMS. So I leave, you know, my great job to go build that product, which is very much what Voxy is today. You know, conversational texting and automation platform, not just for sales and marketing, but for any business messaging or business use case or before you needed to rely on phone and email to get the job done. You can now augment, replace with Voxy. And drive dramatically higher results because our AI now understands, you know, when David's birthday is or how many kids he orders take out for, whatever the business need is, pulls out that relevant information, transforms it, appends it to his profile, dynamically drops him into the right segment for future engagement, but also pushes that data to the businesses, CDP, CRM, email platform, data lake, right? What's a CDP? Uh, customer data platform. So it's effectively like a filtering tool in a lot of ways right? It, it sits on top of a CRM and, and brings in additional data from a variety of different sources so you can do you know additional filtering. Um, effectively, all of that is now being pushed back to the organization. So what we're collecting is what we call zero-party data. First-party data is things that maybe David, I can infer upon or, or, or make inferences based on his purchases. Zero-party data is straight from the horse's mouth. I asked David what color shoes he wants. You know, I asked David when his, when his wedding anniversary is, and he told me, And I understood it, right? And I have the direct data. I don't have to make assumptions. There's no algorithms from Facebook or whatever. It's straight from the horse's mouth. And I can intake that data at scale. I can have a one-to-one conversation with a million Davids at the same time and give them each a differentiated experience based on what they tell me or don't tell me, right? So that scale is incredibly powerful for organizations because now you have a conduit, a direct back and forth with this customer that you can actively manage. And you don't have to have the Bogdan problem, right? Where the wheels fall off the bus. And that supercharges the business in terms of what it can do.
1: That sounds incredible. So tell me, like, how did you, because obviously there has to be some kind of natural language processing and sentiment technology yeah. underneath all of this. Yeah, so, that's a great question. So we- and and you're using a bunch of different types of applications and, and products based on the consumers that you sell. So. How do you train these models to do what you need them to do and you know out you know find the fringe cases? If you could give some examples that would be that would be super helpful.
2: I'd love to. So you're spot on David and I'll be very transparent with you. It's all about raw conversational data. So very early on it was not anywhere near as good as it is today. Today we like to say we can automate anywhere between 90 to 95% of business's interactions off the get go. And then I know it's pretty crazy and I'll explain why in a second. And then that call it remaining 5 to 10% are those edge cases, right? We either need more statistical significance or we shift to what we call a complex sale model where we shift to a live human, either in our state-of-the-art message hub, or we've got thousands of reps or uh, phone, live chat, wherever the business wants to support that, that type of complex engagement, we can do that as well. But off the bat, once we had enough conversational interactions in the English language for the US and Canadian consumer... We were able to deploy the same model, and now it's obviously learning over time, X, Y, and Z, right? But the majority of those gains we've realized, and the, the perfect example of this is the word totes. If you're talking to a 16-year-old female, let's say that, and you're looking for a positive sentiment, yes or no answer, and they respond with the word totes as though, are you looking for a new <laughs> pair of jeans? And they respond with the word totes. <laughs>
1: totes, right? That's Not right.
2: Not toast. That's right. Toast. That's right. Toast. Like, T-O-T-E-S v1 of our nlu engine which is in-house custom built um v1 of that engine would have not understood no compute it would have basically failed and we would have had a failback routine put it in front of a human shift the conversation but after enough observations it now knows that totes equals positive sentiment yes and is able to action that data appropriately to say awesome here's the best pair of pants i'd recommend for you mrs customer or whatever right but Early stages, we didn't have that. And until we trained the model with enough raw conversational data, uh, uh, that was a, you know, a, a bit of a challenge. And how we overcame that was, you know, traditionally, when you think about who had that kind of data, whether it was the Amazons, the Facebooks of the world, right, and they have great products, it was always telling a voice bot what to do. It wasn't actually how co- Americans talk back and forth. Because one of the novels of our product, David, is that we're texting from 10-digit numbers, and there's always a persona. You're always having a back and forth. You think you're talking to a human. And at any point in time, we can route you to a human, but we're trying to emulate that brand or business's best customer service representative, their best experience possible, whether in-store, call center, et cetera. So it's delightful. So there's humor, there's emojis, they'll reply with giffies sometimes, right? But it looks and feels personalized. So until we got enough data, that was a challenge. And once we did, it was next level. Flirting.
1: Dude, if if your bot started sending me emojis, I would think that it was flirting with me. And then
2: yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, probably, we,
1: that happens that, all the time, doesn't
2: it? You would probably flirt back because you wouldn't be a bot. You think you were engaging with Jenny, the store manager of your local whatever. And likely, you know, at any point in time, we can write you there. We've built a conversational flow to mimic what Jenny most likely does. To her customers, or with, and actually engages that customer to elicit the best response, to give them to buy, to give that ten out of ten, whatever the, the the brand is trying to optimize. That's what we do. So it always looks and feels human. So have you? ever So
1: how many times have someone sent a selfie right back to to your? You'd be, your you'd be
2: surprised. Nowhere <laughs> near as often as you would think. It's always more so a. What else can you help with? You know, I, I love you guys' service. You know, it. people always kind of bias towards, hey, or we'll go towards, I, I bet there's some some crazy stuff. We work with, you know, top tier brands, you know, mid-market enterprise businesses. And it's, for the most part, you know, 99.99% super on brand and appropriate. Even, even if they're having a positive experience and the customer are battling with the brand, they're super forthcoming. Uh, and they'll say things like, you know, I really appreciate this outreach. You know, you seem lovely, Jenny. You know, we made Jenny out, but you seem lovely, Jenny. I want to let you know I had a really negative experience last time I ordered XYZ. And I don't think I'm going to shop with you guys. The business didn't have that data before. They didn't know any of this. So now one of our workflows can say, I'm so sorry to hear that, David. You know, that is not how we do business around here. You know, I'd love to make this up to you and then give them options. Whatever that pre kind of triggered customer journey or workflow is, or wrap them directly to a, a customer service representative, a live human, that can triage that for them as well, right? So they have that data now. They have that knowledge to action. So I said a dirty word. I said the B
1: word, bot, right? So tell me, and you know, so tell me the difference between this technology and a traditional bot.
2: It's a great question. So a traditional bot will basically take anything you respond with as an input. So the, the classic example is you're talking to a live chat bot on a website. And, and it, the first field is, what? hi, nice to meet you. What's your name? And there's a field for name. And if you respond with, hey, what's up? My name's David Paul, it'll say, nice to meet you. Hey, what's up? My name's David Paul, right? Mm. It's an attribute driven system. We built a true natural language understanding system. Our bot that, That's NLU. That's NLU. It's not a bot per se, right? It's a, an ML AI system that says, okay, I'm looking for a first name and a last name if it's presented to me. So if David says something like, pleasure to meet you, you know, Jenny, you know, my friends call me David. It understands syntax, can pull out David, and if it has a certain confidence interval, appends to your profile in real time via API, creates that profile somewhere else or updates it if it already exists. And now it'll respond with, great to meet you, David. You know, what can I do for you, right? How can I help? That NLU is the game changer, right? Otherwise, you're basically using a live chat bot That just has an open ending. Which is a commodity, right? It's a commodity at this point. Everyone's got that. Yeah, and I want to push back that we don't necessarily believe in building bots. This is not a bot-driven system. We have some people that call it that, right? It's effectively an automation-driven system that at certain points automates conversation that a human would have wanted to engage with, but it didn't make sense, right? They couldn't efficaciously do it at scale. But at any point in time, we can put you in front of a human. So we have customers that say all the time, you're going to replace my humans. And I say, no, no, no we want to give your humans superpowers to do the things that they most love the creative problem solving the connection the community we want to automate the things that they wish they could do quickly and efficiently but often they can't right we want to focus them on the stuff that really moves the needle yeah
1: they're tony stark you're the suit right that's right
2: exactly i'm going to
1: steal that from you <laughs> there you we go we are iron man yeah you are jarvis right that's you're right. the ai and they that's are right. they are tony stark so that, that's, really, that's really, really interesting. So knowing that you need to have uh, data to make this commercially viable, how did you balance that with the need to grab customers and, and to show traction in the market because you took venture capital?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So really two ways, right? It's an integration uh, play at that point. You either have an existing integration with an existing platform, whether it's a point of sale, email, you know, CRM, et cetera, that has that data that you can bring in in action, or you find an easy way to ingest it. We did both. So we have a number of you know, top tier one integrations with world-class partners, but also that have a lot of that data. We also do what we call the transformer. A lot of our larger customers still prefer to send data via SFTP, effectively you know encrypted CSV that's sent at preset intervals, right? We now have effectively on our end, this transformer or an easy way to map that incoming data and route it appropriately. And we can spin that up. Customer spends 15 minutes setting that up on their end, someone from IT. And on our our end, one of our implementation uh, experts spends 15 to 20 minutes mapping it within our app. And then at that point, we've got a smooth flow of data. And then on the flip side, we work with them to map the net new fields they want So as I now have David's birthday, it goes back where it needs to appropriately so the business can triage it or whatever they need, right, to better engage the next interaction. So it was a data play. But even before that, to be honest with you, David, what we did is we invested heavily in list growth and subscriber growth tools. Most of our brands have never really texted or done it compliantly. We have a variety of patent pendings on how to acquire someone compliantly from a QR code an ad unit on Facebook, a pop-up on your webpage, we can compliantly bring them in to a a compliant text conversation and then actually ask that zero-party data. Get the relevant information that makes that business's next offer, message, whatever, so much more powerful and personalized and dramatically outperforms things like email
1: um i understood about 85 percent of that but we're gonna we're gonna move on
2: right, I, I went no on no
1: a... you're you know, you're geeking out i love it i love it data,
2: uh, data and making it really easy for them to grow their customer list because most of them don't actually have phone numbers where they've not made it a mandatory field and what we're seeing today is one phone number for a business is worth about 10 emails in terms of revenue generated right so suddenly that shift changes to okay phone is now my unique identifier and my most viable traction point. So helping them build that and then marry any revenue and customer data so we can build that profile for them over time.
1: So NLU, natural language. What was the third world? Understanding. Natural language understanding. Is that a category that's out there right now? Or is that a new category?
2: It, is. it, it absolutely is. Right. It's kind of a, a an offshoot or derivative of, you know, that traditional NLP but they all kind of fall under that machine learning data model, right? And it's all about mining for the right data with the right understanding or intent. So it's an attribute-based system stuff.
1: Awesome. So tell me about the process of working with your early customers, you know, because it's everyone wants to say, like, how does Voxy do it today? Right. Yeah. And how you do it today is a genus, or is a, a series of iterations of how you did it earlier on. So for the listeners that are listening and saying, hey, I want to build, um, you know, some natural language, understanding it with certain applications with my customers. How did they how did you do it back then so they can, you know, hopefully scale and become a, a great company like yours? Great question.
2: So I mentioned I kind of started this by saying Voxy, we want to, you know, we want to help all businesses talk with their customers. Having that natural feedback loop was the key, David. So our earliest customers, we were meeting with them weekly, iterating, getting product feedback, and candidly, we we incentivized them with very low rates. You know, being very upfront about what we were building, it was brand new. This wonky guy named Bogdan was pitching them on something that nobody had heard of before, right? But we basically built a really tight feedback loop and asked them to be our innovation partners. So our first ten customers effectively paid very little for the service, but agreed to let us iterate, make mistakes, and optimize the platform for their needs. And that was kind of that, that step one impetus that got us to that level of repeatability. Once we had those 10 customers and we saw what we call the playbooks for the things that mattered to most to them, we invested heavily in making those repeatable, right? And then finding other customers that had similar pain points in that consumer-adjacent industries right that we could then go out and, and sell a sim that those same use cases and pain points
1: so voxy positions itself as a marketing tech platform that sits within um many different verticals but it seems to me from what you just said and by your customer list that you do have specific uh market segments that work really well for you so can you talk a little bit about that and how you identified that
2: yeah that's a great question so People call us a marketing technology platform. I call us a customer communication platform. Marketing is just one of the functions that we do. We've mapped out everything a business has to do to stay viable and can communicate with its customers. There's a support side. There's a business process management side. There's internal communication. Fair enough. All of those things. We want to own all of them. We often are a wedge or an entry point into marketing because that's where most brands want, right? I want to grow there. But suddenly I'm giving you efficiencies on the support side, et cetera. Uh, uh, so going back to kind of that, that original point, it's really tied to, I have a problem, email and phone, I see are declining. The world as I know it today is fundamentally changing, right? And there's going to be a tectonic shift in the future. Can Voxy position me properly to solve that problem?
1: Okay, awesome. So, so tell me, you just raised a bunch of capital. What, what, what's, what's the next step? I mean you raised, how much did you raise last round? Six six million bucks?
2: Uh, seven. Seven million bucks.
1: Seven million. So, you know, did you have a lot of cash in the bank still? And yeah, no, we we,
2: we had we had plenty of runway. We were doing really well. We also had, you know, up, you know, abilities to draw on things like debt facilities, et cetera. Uh candidly, what happened is we had an awesome 2021. We grew, you know, a ton. And what we what started happening, David, is we started seeing even more so remember Bogdan, Enterprise Fire really was the ICP for this product. I couldn't find it. I had a very opinionated view of what we wanted to build. And then when COVID hit, a lot of the enterprise brands we would have wanted to sell to, as you can imagine, were reeling, struggling. They stopped buying. Yeah. What started happening in 21 was we started having a ton of inbound interest from some of the largest businesses in the world that had a lot of the problems that we had solved or built for, right? We were working with a lot of mid-market brands. Uh, and we just saw this explosion of demand in the enterprise space, right? In particular, businesses that had large call center sales forces or, or large amounts of traffic they needed to engage and convert, right? And commoditized industries like retail, like specialty service, like food, right? And we started getting a ton of interest from, from some of these larger enterprise brands. And then our mid-market sector was kind of just scaling even faster than we thought possible. So... We had plenty of, of funding and I was talking to our board as we were building our 22 plan about going faster and kind of the, the, the conversation naturally segue to what would it look like if we you know, had, it was effectively, you know, call it a preemptive round. What would it look like if we had a fast close round that further capitalized Voxy to let us go even faster, right? In specific uh, uh, departments like product and engineering so we could innovate faster. So we could ship more integrations We could scale up our service team to support broader enterprise growth. And then of course, spin up our go-to-market team and capture even more of the demand we were seeing. We think it's early innings in what we're doing. We're very much positioned as the leader in the space, right? But to do that, kind of that market share approach, right? How do we help as many brands as quickly as possible that don't even know they have this problem or that we exist? I mean, I hear so many call recordings these days of brands that are like, I wish I'd known about you guys a year ago, two years ago. Where were you? You know, XYZ. And a part of that is, we know it's still early innings, so distribution, go-to-market is going to be a huge uh, investment for us. So, so scaling up our, our sales team, marketing team, to just p- further get the word out. Most folks don't even know that a solution like ours exists.
1: So, yeah, so how, how do you educate the market? What's your go-to-market playbook?
2: Great question. So, it's been a function of a couple of things, right? One, it's been heavily outbound today, because it's still so new. But two, what we're seeing now is, we work with very, very large brands. And those those engagements, those texts are out there. And now people are starting to come inbound saying, I experienced you on so-and-so. I saw you so-and-so. I have a similar need. Can you help? So we think as we get broader and broader awareness and we start publishing more of it, kind of being more vocal with things like white paper, webinars, kind of the standard marketing activities, but also really harping on the differentiation versus what people are used to with the one-way spam texts, Right. Uh, uh, and they start experiencing it in the ecosystem, they're going to naturally show up and come to us, especially as products like email continue to struggle and course. So it's kind of the, the, the classic outbound build and grow the market share as more and more of our customers tell their friends, you know, about the value of the product. We're now getting tagged on places like LinkedIn for innovation. And, you know, you know, our customers love the product and kind of what they're seeing. And they're, you know, saying, I have these incredible results and they're sharing so we expect that marketing inbound flywheel to start spinning pretty dramatically this year. And obviously we're going to invest heavily in things like events and webinars and just further educating the market.
1: Does the market know they have a problem with this?
2: The market knows they 100% have a problem. They don't know that a solution yet exists that can solve it the way that Voxy can. They know that their existing legacy communication channels are declining. But what traditionally what they've done is said. I'll just spend more money on ads and I'll just get more leads top of the funnel right top of the yeah. funnel
1: right let's just spend yeah. more money
2: and I don't know if you've seen kind of recent privacy changes with brands like Apple and now what you know Google has announced with Android right those ad those ad platforms don't work anywhere near as well anymore almost overnight when, when Apple changes privacy regulations for Facebook you know customer acquisition costs skyrocketed two three four six times what a brand was spending before but you can't
1: target them.
2: You can't target them anymore, right? So suddenly it becomes even more important to nurture and convert the audience, not only that you have, but build that better relationship with that audience because lifetime value has always been the name of the game. But now the top of funnel became significantly more expensive. So they've got to invest in a product like ours. So timing is really on our side as we kind of espouse and tell the story uh, and help educate these brands about the changing ecosystem and what we can do for. That's incredible. So what keeps you up at night? It's a really good question. Talent. It is always that, right? It's we've got to grow. We have a number of mantras internally. One of them is A plus championship level players. If you've seen the last dance with Michael Jordan, right? Huge sports fan. Um, I want to build a championship caliber team here. And we're constantly looking for top tier world-class talent and we want to find it. We need it here desperately, urgently. We want driven Self-starting, positive, collaborative individuals that want to fail, that want to learn, that want to make mistakes, and they want ownership. Right, we're a no BS, no bureaucracy organization. So we're looking for really talented, motivated folks that we can throw really difficult problems at as we innovate and pioneer this industry. So it's really finding the right folks. I'm spending a number of hours each day, more than a number at this point. You know, outbound recruiting, cold LinkedIning, whatever I need to do, right, to get in front of the get in front of the folks. And help uh, uh, bring on this this tier one talent that we're looking for.
1: Are you remote, or do you, do you do things in the office, or both?
2: That's a great question. So hybrid. Uh, we've got our headquarters in Atlanta. Uh, we've then got a base in Boston, base in Denver, where we've got you know a nexus of, of A plus players, and then we've also got a number of remote uh, folks as well. So we're we're non discriminate there. Uh, we'll hire folks wherever they are in the country, but we also are upfront that as the environment kind of uh, uh, as the pandemic subsides there will be a lot of opportunities for us to get the entire company together in person for fun events uh, it's one of our core values is having fun as a team winning as a team so we we do expect to, to start bringing folks to the offices especially as things kind of hopefully kind of quiet down and, and settle down here over the next call it six to nine months but hybrid, with uh, uh, opportunities in places like Atlanta, Boston, and Denver, where we've got uh, in-office experiences as well, uh, a couple days a week for folks.
1: What roles are the hardest to get, engineers?
2: You know, it's funny. Yes, engineers, but I will be very honest with you. It's also folks uh, uh, on our strategy and support side, right? So we are doing something really interesting. And I mentioned, you know, how do you, how does this work so well? We really partner with our customers, educating them on the value of how we do things, Most of these, most of our brands have never talked with their customers before. They've never had the ability to do that. So the educational component, the implementation onboarding component is a huge, huge aspect of our learning and scaling. So that's been a challenging one, right? Finding folks that have relevant experience or folks that have been in kind of nascent industries that we can, that we can bring here and we can leverage their, their past experiences.
1: Yeah, because you're going to have to make your customers want to want to help their, you know, and their end customers, and that's that's a behavioral shift,
2: big change management shift, right? Um, so so finding those folks is you know a a big big priority for us, and then of course engineers, product folks, and then candidly, if we're going to be really honest, is also you know uh, uh, talent, right? So director and above level talent as we scale, we want more and more of it, right? People that have. Built great organizations, been a part of great rocket ships that, that want to come on here as we continue scaling up those teams.
1: Okay, that's great. So, what companies do you emulate right now from a tech yeah. perspective? Like, who do you have a crush on?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, so, I've got there's different tiers, right, or categories of companies I want to emulate for different things. I think from a product perspective, uh, I'm going to call out another uh, Atlanta company here in town called Full Story, if you're familiar with them. I
1: thought you were going to say MailChimp. Thank God you didn't say MailChimp. No, no, no. I'm so no, sick of no. hearing about MailChimp.
2: Everybody loves MailChimp, but they've got a great product, right? We're great friends at the firm. I know a lot of the the, the, the leaders there. And they're awesome. Um, but fundamentally, I think Full Story has really nailed uh, uh, their product. I was a former customer in my last business. I've gotten to know Scott, you know, and just built a phenomenal organization over there all around uh, uh, how you make products sticky. And they had a similar problem, educating this customer in the mid-market enterprise, how to do user research, how to mm-hmm. understand buying flows, all of these things, right? Uh, uh, th- that's one I, I you know, we, we learned a lot from. And then another one that I emulate candidly is uh, sales law. They figured out distribution, how to scale their product once it was ready, Right and how to get it in the arms of as many people as possible, and then build that that beloved customer base. So I spend a lot of time picking. They were bought, weren't they? Uh, I think it was an investment. I don't know. I don't know oh, if they they t- oh, they right. took like a monster yeah. round. Yeah, it was just a large investment from Vista. Uh, uh, and Kyle's built a phenomenal organization over there. But you know, one of their they have a ton of superpowers. Obviously, great product, we're, we're customers as well. But they figured out how to sell it by, by marrying it authentically to those pain points, right? That we're, that we're also trying to do. So those are two companies I want to emulate uh, uh, heavily.
1: What about, on the, what, about, so what about on the marketing and the sales side?
2: Yeah. Uh, on the marketing side, honestly, I, I, we're a customer there as well. Gong has done a freaking dude. Gong is amazing. See, that's I <laughs> dude, love I
1: love Gong. Everything from their Gong, branding, right? their content. I mean, it's just it's incredible.
2: It's, on the marketing side, they're by far the best. We also have purple as a brand color. So big shout out. I yeah. love everybody that's using purple, right? Um, but they've done a really, really great job, candidly in another market where you know it's really easy to become commoditized building that brand. Right. And then building that word of mouth, you see, we just, we both, we geek out on gone. <laughs> Dude, we, we both lit
1: up when we talked about gone. See? Such a exactly. Great. I'm a runner
2: and I will literally go on runs listening to, to gone calls, sales calls. Right. So I can, you know, leave feedback, notes, et cetera. As you can tell, I have some unhealthy habits. Uh, uh, but you know, that's another product on the marketing side that I very much emulate.
1: What is, uh, what, 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 would how many miles you go a week?
2: Great question. Uh, is it that great? It it is because it varies. Uh, for me, I like to hit forty. I'll be honest with you the weather the weather hasn't been that great in Atlanta the last month and a half, and I've barely barely been hitting like fifteen. But when hopefully towards the end of this month, early next, as because the weather gets a little better, I'll get back to that. So I usually try to hit about forty, which is usually for me uh, anywhere between call it four to five, six to eight mile runs, right? Depending on day, what I ate the night before. I try to go in the mornings mm-hmm. uh, before the workday starts. What
1: are you pacing at?
2: Right now, well, I'm going to be off, right? My my goal is always right about an 8 minute, 40, eight, 8.45 per mile is what I try to do. That's pretty good. Uh, uh, but if I were to do it right now, dude, I'd, I'd be shocked if I break 9.30 just because I've been so subpar so and I'm doing like these short bursts and they're not as regimented as they should be you stretch Uh, i do I actually my wife yells about me all yells at me all this time because we young kids sometimes i'll i need to go in the evenings i'll stretch for 15 minutes before i go for a run and i've been running so uh after i sold the business and from where i was to now i've lost about 60 pounds through running uh and obviously healthy diet etc but uh I've never had a running-related injury at the amount I run. I alternate shoes, all that stuff, because I stretch for literally 15 minutes. I do the same stretches every time for X amount. I use my phone stopwatch, and my wife will get so frustrated sometimes. She'll be walking out, and she's like, you're still here? You haven't started your run? The kids are going crazy right so it's pretty funny but i, I, I won't see won't, this won't, is
1: a great learning moment for me because i sh- we should have talked about your running in the beginning of the podcast and like how you lost 60 pounds because there's so much to do that but that i right. think is, is pretty good maybe i'm going to cut this and put this in the beginning because for it's, sure it, it's uh, pretty uh, good
2: but that was it was literally it was running it was watching what i ate and that was that was it but i you know i was obsessed over that that texting problem i was basically living at our office after i sold the business and I got into a really unhealthy state, right? And uh, kind of woke out of it. A couple of months later, I decided I was going to go build this product, uh, which is Boxy, And probably running helped me reach that clarity. Oh, yeah.
1: No, I used to be 250. I was ginormous. I'm not kidding. Like I, I was so big. And, you know, How did you it was-
2: How did you, you get down?
1: Um, You know, I think first was just kind of exercising and then- like I went, got down to like 200 and then like, I never could get past 200 and I'm like 5'10". So that's kind of, that's definitely chubby. And when I, and then I got this like bodybuilder, like trainer and she just, just like, just got me like really smart on food.
2: Right. And it, that's what occurred to me too. Weight loss is like 70% diet, right? Easy. And and I that had never, you know, as I was getting bigger and bigger, I I was still eating the same four things. And I was like, oh, I'll figure out a way to run or, you know, electrical. Running was a part of it, right? You got to get your body moving, all that stuff. But it was, for me, it's like 70% diet. Yeah. Running for me and and
1: any type of exercise really is more for mental health. (laughs) I'm not abusive to my kids and my wife. And then the rest of it is, is, you know, just nutrition. And then when I really got below two, like, like started to like go beneath 185, and I'm kind of like 175 is when I started incorporating like intermittent fasting, that really worked for me. So I I do IMF now.
2: uh, And I actually did that as I was losing weight. And it was a a, a huge uh, net ad for me. I think that Plus the diet with the running was was the, the perfect combination for me. Awesome. Uh,
1: public companies. You own know any stocks?
2: Yeah. So to, uh, my I have a number of stocks. I've, I I I bought everything from Luckin Coffee, which was supposed to be the Starbucks of China, and they had all the <laughs> complaints. Uh, to you know, I'm a big believer. If we're using a SaaS product here at the office uh, uh, and we believe in it and love it, that we that I, I should buy it because we see value, even if the markets are. Knocking it as, you know, a lot of what we've seen today. So I own basically, any public stock of a product we're using at Voxy, uh, I have my personal portfolio. And then probably my favorite stock, and this is such a cliche answer, but I I think I have a different reason for it, is Apple. Um, And it goes back to that privacy thing we just said. One minute feature change. You now have to give an app like Facebook the ability to see your location. Completely change the trajectory of that company. I don't know if you saw they're not doing well right now. Obviously no, they're just get crushed.
1: Company.
2: Yeah, they but absolutely think about that, Brands can't spend because Apple changed a privacy setting on the iPhone. Right, like the platform think about right. the level of impact, not the phone, not the computer. I'm a you know Big Apple fanboy, but just the level of impact that one company has on entire industries. Like you just you have to admire that, right? And what Steve Jobs built. Obviously, level of innovation is kind of. You know The slope hasn't been as aggressive under Tim Cook, but the execution is just incredible. It's incredible.
1: I own a ton of Apple. I think Berkshire Hathaway, their whole portfolio is 40% Apple. Friend for a guy that talks about portfolio diversification a lot. I mean, I think you could just throw that out the window because Apple, I mean, I think that was reading that Apple in its entirety, if you just look at their business units, their AirPods are the biggest headphone manufacturer in their world their right. their eye or their watch or whatever the hell they call it is the biggest telematics company in the world it just those product lines
2: isn't that crazy what they should do is they should buy a country next and then we can really start seeing what happens right but that's probably more, <laughs> of, a, more of a steve jobs idea at this point.
1: yeah <laughs> totally it's gonna happen bogdan thank you so much for uh for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure we learned so much today about natural language.
2: Understanding, Understanding, there we but, go. But even more, what we should, what, key takeaway, brands should talk with their customers. They need to build those relationships and they need to do it in authentic channels that deliver on one-to-one. Otherwise they're likely not gonna be here tomorrow. That, that's the one message. So our, our mission and vision is to connect the world through conversation. And if brands don't talk, businesses don't talk with their customers, it won't be around in the coming years. Because you can't trust the platforms
1: period. You can't trust them. You can't trust Apple. You can't trust Facebook. You can't trust Google because the bottom line is with the flick of a switch, they can completely cut you off. So building. Don't, you don't own the
2: other. relationship. They do, right? You've got to build own relationships and channels that you control. Otherwise exactly that. There's another one going back to Facebook. Facebook messenger used to be the hottest thing, right? Every brand had Facebook messenger. And then a couple of years ago, brands were abusing it and sending a lot of outbound messages to their end subscribers on messenger and Facebook's app downloads and app usage started declining. So guess what they did? They put an end to outbound messages, right? And overnight they killed <laughs> massive revenue streams for these consumer businesses that rely heavily on, you know, double digit percentages of the revenue coming from that, you know, those promotions or whatever, right from those Facebook bots. Um, And brands don't, they can't do that. You have to own the customer relationship and it's got to be yours in its entirety for life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Bogdan, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to have to come back. I'm going to send you an email. I'm going to send you a term sheet to buy some secondaries from you. It's going to be an incredible offer. Yeah, let's do (laughs) it. I know know you're still probably eating ramen noodles, and you could probably use some cash. So uh. I'll be honest
2: with you. One of the best pieces of advice I got from you know entrepreneurs that have raised capital was uh, spend as though you're still at the stage of your last round. And then what Wayne told me to to go back to that is you can only burn a dollar once, Bogdan. So make sure you burn it the right way. And he's so spot on. I like Uh, that. And and it's the you know I think about that too, right? How are we going to deploy this capital? Just because we raise more money doesn't mean that we get to be more, more wasteful or more want. It's the other way around. How do we make sure that every dollar we invest in our business is a dollar that delights our customers and solves more of their problems?
1: Absolutely. And always, and don't forget this one, make sure you always sell on the way up. (laughs) That's
2: right. (laughs) All right. We're going to be here for quite a while. We've got a lot of building to do and, you know, the United States is just step one of where we think we're going to be able to take this product and platform.
1: Everybody, that's the Capital Stack. Bogdan, thanks for so much for coming on. If they want to reach out to you or learn more about Voxy, how's the best way to do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. First off, David, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, a couple of different ways. Uh, at, at Twitter, B. Constantine. Feel free to reach out to me there. If you want to learn more about Voxy, Voxy.com. Uh, otherwise, shoot me a text. Uh, uh, if you guys... Ping me anywhere. I'm always available. You see my number pretty much listed everywhere. Uh, Text me anytime.
1: Awesome, thanks so
2: much. Talk to you later. Cheers, thanks Dave. Bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing and subscribing.